had a little uh, mechanical on the lyrics, on things. And so technology's wonderful, but when it crashes, it's not so wonderful. I'm just kidding. Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Psalm 131. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention, and they'll get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can hear the Word of God tonight, read it with your own eyes, allow it to have its full impact, and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you this evening. Continue to study these psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent, the pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims coming from all over the world to Jerusalem three times a year, they would sing these songs as they made their way up to Jerusalem, the elevated uh, place that Israel, uh, Jerusalem was in Israel, not only spiritually, but in terms of physically, it is uh, a part of a series of mountains there and, and that part of, uh, of Israel. And then Psalm 131, it's a psalm that I love. I don't know why, you know, psalms become favorites and who can have a favorite, but there's these different psalms that the Lord uses through our Christian life to speak to us, and, and I really love Psalm 131. And because within this psalm, we have the recipe for a calm and quiet spirit. The psalmist David writes, Lord, my heart is not haughty nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I'd like you to notice that word calmed there in verse a calm's a nice word, isn't it? Especially when you're in the middle of a lack of calm. I wonder if we were to ask each one of us, we don't have the time to do it, but say, when you think of the English word calm, what picture comes to your mind? What's the picture of calm to you? I know what it is to me. It's a funny thing. To me, the picture of calm in life and I'm no real great outdoorsman, but it is the, to wake up very, very early in the morning at daybreak, maybe somewhere in the Sierras, and you're by this body of water, and you just begin, you can sense the heat of the day beginning now to make its impact upon the day. And as you wake up and you look out, there's this great body of water without a ripple on it, completely calm, completely at peace. That's the picture that always uh, comes into my mind. You notice he declares that his soul, he declares his soul to be calmed, and the soul refers to who and what he is on the inside, in his heart, in his mind, in his spirit what the Holy Spirit has brought into our life, where we commune with God and where we relate uh, to God. And so all of this, he has his soul, it refers to the deep, deep inside of him that it is calm. And so he's declaring himself to be inwardly calm 
as calm and as settled and as level, literally, as the water on that mountain lake. And that's what the word calm means. It means to be even, to be level in spirit. You notice, too, in verse 2, that he speaks of a quieted soul. And this is a soul that is quiet. It's at rest. It's at peace. We think about sometimes as parents, but it's not just something that is unique to parents. Every one of us can feel it in one context or another where we say, I'm in need of some peace and quiet. And there are those times where, I mean, life is so big and it's so demanding and it's so much noise all around us, and we need peace and quiet. And here is David speaking of the fact that peace and quiet is available in the midst of the chaos and the noise of life around us, of the world all around us. You notice that he also, in verse 2, he likens his soul to a weaned child with his mother. That's just a poetic way of saying that his heart is content. When a child is weaned, that's a child that has ceased nursing. And when a mother holds a child that's been weaned and is no longer nursing, that child is content on his mother's lap. And so he sits there contentedly, an unweaned child is held on the lap of a mother, and he's distracted. He's got other things on his mind, and that is to be nursed or to be fed, and he'll fuss until he gets it. And so in all of this, David is declaring his soul to be calm, to be quiet, and to be content. I don't, I don't, if you're smacking your lips here, spiritually speaking tonight, you keep it to yourself thus far. You notice that that calmness of soul, that quietness of soul, that contentment of soul, it didn't just happen on its own in David's life. I wish it did just happen on its own, but it doesn't. David declares, I have calmed and quieted my soul. In other words, David took deliberate actions, made deliberate decisions in his life in order for him to enjoy this calm and this quiet and this contentment. And the reason it requires deliberate action is because it doesn't just happen naturally in our lives, because the world that we live in is anything but calm and quiet and contented. And it's bringing all of its noise, all of its wars, all of its violence, all of its fighting, all of its covetousness, constantly endeavoring to invade our lives. Because the world is that way, the calmness of spirit or soul, the quietness of soul, contentment of soul, it doesn't just happen. It requires godly decisions and godly deliberate choices in our lives for that to happen. You say, where is it found? And David, in this psalm, he gives us three things that were keys to his experiencing a life of calm and quietness and contentedness in a world that was anything but that. You think about David's life, oh my. Not only living in a fallen world, but the responsibility that he had, the family problems that were going on, the responsibility of the whole nation and wars and battles and economies and all of these different kind of things. And so when he speaks about the fact that he has found that kind of place, I'll tell you, it really has my attention. 
And how did the psalmist do it? He tells us in verse 1 that David determined that he would guard his heart from haughtiness or from pride. And a calm and a quiet spirit requires the shunning of pride in our lives. Pride is the enemy of a calm life. Because the word pride, as it's used most often in the Bible, it literally means to see myself above, to see myself as better than you, to see myself above you. And when I see myself as superior to you or above you, then I have, am going to feel a pressure to be constantly proving that to myself and to you. And so there'll, there'll be this constant desire to prove that. And since the Bible teaches that none of us are intrinsically better than anyone else. We may be better at certain things than other people, but we are not intrinsically better than anyone else. Then I am trying to prove something that isn't true at all. I love how Paul put it to the Galatians. He said, if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, well, there goes the whole self-esteem movement. Because we don't find our value, we don't find our identity in how the world views us. How terrible we'd be at the mercy of the world. We don't even find our identity or our value in how we see ourselves. I mean, the mood swings and the whole thing that are part of our… that's as unstable almost as the world. So it isn't self-esteem, it's God-esteem. How does God see us? What is our identity in Him? And that is something that never, ever changes. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So there can't be any rest in pride. Pride is always a source of conflict. It will always lead us into conflict. I remember when I was a new Christian, I was reading the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, and it said, By pride only comes contention but with the well-advised is wisdom, because pride can only be expressed at the expense of someone else, and that someone else always knows that that's happening, and it always creates tension relationally, and it always begins to create tension in, in difficulty in the relationship, even if it doesn't begin to manifest itself immediately. Additionally, pride forces the Lord to humble us. Jesus spoke a parable when he noticed how the various religious leaders, when they came into a room, would fight to make their way to the highest seats or the most prominent seats in the room in which the feast was being given. And he told the, a parable to them, speaking to them of the fact that they ought to come in and take the lowest seat because if you take the highest seat in a room and the master of the feast comes in and sees that you have or I have promoted myself higher than he wants me to be promoted, then he'll be forced to remove me from that seat because it's intended for somebody else publicly humble me and tell me to take a lower seat. But if we take the lowest seat in the room, all you can do is go up. And there's that place of humility. If we take the lowest place 
then nobody can have you take a lower place. You know that any movement that's going to occur is going to be upward. And so you can enjoy the feast in a way that we wouldn't if we elevated ourselves to a higher seat and then we're eating our meal, but we're all tensed up with all of the acids that am I going to be asked to take a lower seat? And Jesus declared, for whoever exalts himself will be abased and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And sooner or later, the proud person always gets humbled by God because the proud person will always elevate themselves into a position that is higher than the one that God has for them. And God intends for somebody else, and He will be forced to remove us from that position to make way for the right person. And so, the key to a calm and quiet life is humility, esteeming others better than ourselves, more highly than ourselves, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And that's a peace that a person will enjoy that the proud never, ever know. There's nothing to live up to in being humble. There's nothing ever to prove, and it never, ever causes conflict. I remember Jesus, uh, Gail Irwin talking about this very subject, and he says, you never hear a church uh, split occurring over who's the head slave or servant, or taking the lowest position. The fights always occur, self-promotion and pride and endeavoring to take the higher place. Now, second, he tells us, is a key to a calm life, is he guided, guided his, guarded his eyes from being lofty. In other words, he shunned selfish ambition. He tells us that in verse 1. And this speaks negatively of the person who is always looking for position higher than the one that they already have. And it's a selfish ambition. I'm going to strive. I'm going to fight until I get what I want, and nobody better get in my way. And I think it's important to realize that not all ambition is bad. God give us men and women who are ambitious for the expansion of the kingdom of God. There's a sanctified ambition that every Christian should possess. But this is a selfish ambition that he's talking about here, and it's condemned in the Scriptures. Paul wrote again to the church at Philippi, but let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And so this selfish ambition will always mean I'm going to strive after something that is beyond God's calling upon my life and something that is beyond His gifting and abilities that He's given me in my life, and ultimately there can't be any peace there because God only gives me the grace to be successful in what He's called me to do. It also speaks of the person who always has their eyes set on some material possession that they don't possess. It's a kind of person that wants more and more and more and more and better and better and better and better, and no matter what they have, they always want more and better. And there's no peace and there's no quiet and there's no calm in that kind of a life. And so to have my life completely focused on what I don't have and I want, it means I'm going to miss out on all of the sense of joy and blessing to be experienced and being thankful for what I already have. 
The Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. The person who has a relationship with God and then is satisfied with whatever God chooses to add to that relationship materially, that is the rich person. The rich person in life is not the person who has the most, but the person who is content with the least. And that's the truth about it. When you're younger, you just think, that's nonsense. That's just sermon fodder. That's ridiculous. I don't believe that for a moment. And then you get older, and you realize that it really is true. It's interesting that David would write this. You think about all that he had, all of the power, the most powerful king in the history of the nation, all of the wealth that he had, all of the fame that he had, that he came to a place when he pens this psalm, when he does, he, he no longer measures wealth in terms of money or possession or position or fame. He measures wealth in terms of peace, in terms of peace in terms of a calm spirit, a contented spirit, a level spirit. He realizes that that's the most important thing in life and one of the marks of true wealth. What if, what if you own the whole world and you have no peace? How long can you survive? What if you're the most powerful man or woman in the whole world but you don't know a moment of peace in life. How powerful are you? How rich is that kind of a person? And I'll tell you, I don't know how old David was when he wrote this psalm, but there is something about growing older in the Lord where you begin to see things clearly for what is really valuable and what isn't valuable in life. And when those lights go on, we realize that all of it looks exactly like what Jesus said in his teaching. And every time we fight against what he has taught or what he has said, it is always to rob ourselves of the ultimate blessing, the true blessings, what makes people truly rich in life. And David came to understand that late in his life. And then third, he tells us that he didn't concern himself with matters or with things that were too profound for him. And so he's come to a place in his spiritual life where he doesn't feel like he has a responsibility to explain God. It's a funny thing, not, I suppose it's not true of every Christian, but some of us when we became, you know, brand new Christians, we felt it was our duty to explain God every way, everything He did or He didn't do. We had to have an explanation for it. I think of Job's friends, Job in that very, very difficult trial that he was in. 
And rather than just his friends just simply encouraging Job to trust in God who was gracious and loving, they felt that they had to explain why God was doing all of this in his life. And they go on chapter after chapter after chapter, Job, God must be doing this because of sin in your life. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And if we feel that it's our responsibility to explain the ways of God behind every difficulty in the lives of God's people, we'll never know a calm and a quiet spirit because there's so much that we don't know. That's God's job. It's not our job, and I need to accept that. Our job is to do exactly what the psalmist does in verse 3, and that is to lovingly and simply encourage faith in God through all of the storms of life. As the old saying goes, when we're faced with what we don't know, we fall back on what we do know from the Scriptures. God loves me, that He is for me, that He is with me, and that's the place to find calm and find peace in the difficulty. And here the psalmist has come to a place where he's willing to accept mystery in a relationship with God. No one will ever know calm or ever know peace and quiet who is unwilling to accept mystery in a relationship with God and accept mystery sometimes in God's dealings in our lives. Whenever you have the finite us in relationship with the infinite God, we can only track with God so far, and then it becomes mystery. It's like the old saying, a God small enough to understand isn't big enough to worship because if he's small enough to understand, then he's smaller than me. Why would I make a God of someone who is smaller than me? So if I'm going to have a God who is big as the God of the Bible, then I'm going to have to accept the fact that there's going to be mystery in this relationship, many things that I may not be able to figure out unless he gives me revelation related to it and then just finding that the calm and the peace in walking by faith. And David here has found that calmness and quietness of soul comes through faith and not through explanation. The Bible says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And when he talks about not concerning myself with great matters or things too profound for me, it also includes the lack of peace and the lack of calm that becomes a part of our life when we stick our nose into things that are none of our business. You mean there are things going on in people's lives that are none of my business? Yes. There are things that are going on in people's lives that are none of your business and none of my business. We think, of course, affectionately of the Apostle Peter related to this. Jesus had no sooner restored him, recommissioned him in his calling as an apostle on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, following Jesus' resurrection from the dead and following Peter's denial of Jesus three times. And Jesus tells Peter how he's going to spend his life, and he even tells Peter what probably most of us would not want to know, and that is the very means by which he's going to die crucified upside down. So his whole life has been put in front of him. All he has to do is now just keep his nose clean and stay focused on what God has called him to do. But then Jesus begins to speak to John. 
And Peter says to Jesus, what are you going to do with him? He sticks his nose into Jesus' business and John's business. And Jesus said to Peter, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Now, some of you may not have any Peter in you at all. No, that's a lie if you believe that. We all have plenty of Peter inside of us. You think about how much trouble we invite into our lives because we don't stay focused on the one, two, or three things that God has called us to do, and we're minding everyone else's business. And I find I have to exhort myself every once in a while with those words that Jesus spoke to Peter. I'm inclined to get involved in this or, you know, learn about this or whatever, and, and I need to remind myself it's none of your business. You stay focused on what God has called you to do. Otherwise, I lose the peace and quiet of my soul, of my life. And so this beautiful, beautiful psalm, a calm soul, a quiet soul, contentment in life, they don't just happen in life. They're a result of choices that we need to make to protect them by shunning pride, shunning selfish ambition, shunning covetousness, and not concerning myself with matters that are too great for me. Karen was reading a newspaper article today, and it was talking about suicide rates. Some of you might not be, you may not follow the news the way uh, some of the rest of us do. And for that, I say, God bless you. But the suicide rates have reached literally epidemic proportions in the United States since the economic meltdown back in 07. You go into any bookstore and you go into the nonfiction section of what the bestsellers are. And you see in half of the books that are there, it is some author trying to give the secret of a calm and a contented life. And here we have in this beautiful Psalm 131, a recipe for that related to our own lives. Beautiful psalm. May the Lord really use it, make a friend of it in our lives, really use it to help us walk in a, the calm and quiet soul that the Lord desires for each of us. I love that psalm. Psalm 132 is a celebration of God's choice of Jerusalem for His dwelling place. And again, a psalm of ascent. And the psalmist writes, Lord, remember David and all of his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes nor slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And the psalmist is encapsulating David's burden to establish Jerusalem as the place of worship for the nation of Israel. 
And it was on his heart after his palace had been built, after these great buildings had been built in the city of Jerusalem. He had peace with all of his enemies. And when he was in that place, all he could think about is that the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, is in another city in a very humble environment of somebody's private home at the moment, and, and that he wants to bring that Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to establish Jerusalem as the place of worship for the Jews. That was the desire that David had on his heart. And you remember that he shared that with Nathan the prophet, and Nathan said to the king, go, do all that's on your heart, for the Lord is with you. And then the Lord spoke to Nathan and said, listen, you're a good prophet, but you spoke too soon on that one. I don't want David to build me the temple. He's going to transport the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, but he's got too much blood on his hands as a man of war. His son will build the temple. And so Nathan had to come back to David and inform him uh, of that. And so this was the desire that David had was to build the temple. Everything began with the transporting uh, of the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjath-Jerim, where it had rested for 20 years, into Jerusalem. And in verse 6, it's just through verse 10, it's beautiful. I don't know how many of you have ever watched, like, um, the Tour de France. It's a cycling event. Or sometimes before the Olympics begin, someone will begin to carry the Olympic torch, and they'll run across the country or whatever, and people find out that this event is happening in their hometown. And so they come out, and they want to be a witness of this great event. Well, you multiply at times what? And word went out among the nation of Israel that here is David, and he's going to transport the Ark of the Covenant from Kirjah-Jerim, and he's going to bring it to Jerusalem. And so once the path was made known, everybody that was within any kind of walking distance of where the Ark was going to be transported, they came in these great crowds that had gathered together. Behold, verse 6, we heard of it in uh, Ephrathah. And we found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place. Again, the ark representing the presence of God. And they're saying, Lord, come to your resting place in Jerusalem. You and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. You can imagine the shouting and the excitement for your servant David's sake, do not turn away uh, the face of your anointed. And so here was all of this excitement as people came out to witness this great event. And then in verse 11, the psalmist describes God's promise to David in all of this. And what God spoke to David, because David was going to be disappointed over the fact that he would not be able to build the temple. And it gives you an idea of how much David wanted to build the temple for the Lord in that when he was told he couldn't build the temple, he spent the rest of his life accumulating all of the wealth and all of the materials that would be required for it to be built so that all of Solomon would need to do is just to build it. So David did everything but build it. He went right up to that line. And, 
and that was, that, was the one, that was the thing that he cared about. He didn't care about being king. He didn't care about the power. He didn't care about any of that. What he cared about was God and that God would be firmly established at the center of the national life of Israel. And he was thankful that he got to do this, the transporting of the ark, but he didn't get to build the temple. The Lord knew that that would be a disappointment to him, but the Lord then promised uh, David, and it's recorded in its own way in verses 11 and 12, that the Messiah would come into the world through his bloodline. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God spoke to David, "'And your house and your kingdom shall be established.'" Before, uh, forever before you, your throne shall be established forever, which David correctly understood to mean that God was promising to bring the promised Messiah into the world through His bloodline, just as Jesus was. The Lord has sworn in truth, verse 11, to David, He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. And uh, so this promise uh, that the Messiah would come through David's lineage, and then he speaks of David's physical sons, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons shall sit upon your throne forever. And so it was Jesus, when He came on the scene, people called Him the Son of David, the Son of David, the Son of David. It was their recognition of the fact that He was the Messiah coming from David's uh, bloodline. And God promised that the dynasty of David would continue uninterrupted as long as His descendants observed the law of Moses. And it's important to realize in verse 11, the promise to David that Messiah would come into the world through his bloodline, that was unconditional. That was going to happen no matter what. But the promise, verse 12, that a descendant of David would reign forever was conditional upon his sons and descendants being obedient to the Word of God, and ultimately they forsake the, forsook the Lord, and they went into captivity. And then here in verse 13 is this celebration of Zion or Israel as God's dwelling place. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell forever, for I have desired it. And then God speaks here of His promises to bless the worship that would uh, be offered up to Him from Jerusalem. I will abundantly bless her provision. God's saying, I will provide food for uh, the nation as a result of this and food for the poor. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. It will be a place of joy for God's people to worship Him, and there I will make the horn of David grow, and the horn represents strength in the Scriptures, and here the uh, verse 17 returns to speaking of the Messiah, I will make the horn of David grow, I will prepare a lamp for my anointed, but his enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. And so the Lord promises the appearance and the crowning of the anointed one and, uh, uh, and that 
promise of victory to David and the promise of victory ultimately to the coming of Messiah. And ultimately, all of this will be fulfilled by Jesus in his thousand-year reign over the whole wide world. By the way, he will reign from Jerusalem. So if you were hoping that in the thousand-year reign of Christ that you might get Jerusalem, um, no. Uh, he is going to reign from Jerusalem. You will serve in some other uh, place in the world. It may be a Denaire, it may be Santa Barbara, it may be who knows where, but it'll be great and it'll be a perfect match for us. He tells us that the Jesus' enemies are going to be put to shame. The thousand-year reign of Christ, He will rule with a rod of iron, enforcing obedience to the Word of God and protecting the prosperity of that thousand years that comes with simple obedience to the Word of God. Sometimes it's kind of interesting, you know, here I've been a Christian for a while now, and um, even within my Christian life, sometimes you would talk about Jesus ruling with a rod of iron, and an earlier, even within one generation, in the United States of America, it seemed like oh, such a terrible thing, and what in the world and all. But even in these last couple of decades where we have seen just the unraveling of law and order in one of the last nations in the world that knows something of law and order, even now we find ourselves not having to try and explain that and make it palatable to people if we ever felt inclined to do so but to realize that the way that things are going, there is a craving in our heart for the fact that He will rule with a rod of iron, and the bad guys won't get to take over not only the world, not only a country or a state or a city, they won't be able to even take over a neighborhood or a house in that neighborhood. So. God knew that the world would descend into the place that it is in, in which God's people will crave the day when He will rule in that kind of a way. And the Lord brings out so much of this in Psalm 2, as we saw uh, 12 years ago. Psalm 133. I'm glad you have your sense of humor. Psalm 133 records that blessing of brethren dwelling together in unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garment. It's like the dew of Mount Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. So again, another one of the Psalms of Ascent, and here they are, the children of Israel, they're making their way to Jerusalem, and as the pilgrim looks all around at the diversity of human beings that are coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, his heart was just filled with praise to the Lord that God would be able to unify that kind of diversity around Him and around the worship of 
of him. And so David, he writes this, he's witnessing all of this, and in the coming related to the tabernacle in, in his time, and this beautiful psalm as he sees the people coming together, they're united in their love for God, they're united in their love for the things of the Lord, and their concern for one another, and the rest of God's people all around the world, and his heart just soars at that. And he declared their behold, and so this psalm is a a psalm that unfolds on the basis of what he's witnessing with his own eyes. And what excites him and, and the Holy Spirit within him, verse 1, is to see the brethren dwelling together in unity, to see God's people living with one another, walking together, um, fellowshipping one, with one another in unity. And again, David looks out. Sometimes people and they go to Israel even today, and they think all Jews are going to look a certain way. And you've got uh, Ethiopian Jews who are as black as black can be. And then you have Jews who have red hair, and if that person went out in the sun for half an hour, they'd be in intensive care related to their skin for burns, and everything in between. I mean, in those days, I mean, the, the diversity of within the Jewish people. We think about today the brethren dwelling together in unity. We think about the body of Christ. Look at the diversity. It tells us in the Bible that when we stand before the Lord in heaven and we praise Him, people are going to be represented from every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every, every kind of person in the whole wide world is going to be there and is going to be happy uh, to be there. And so this is a unity that's not based upon uniformity, but it's the unity of tremendous diversity, diversity of God's people, come from every culture, every language. Some are rich, some are poor, some are educated, some are uneducated, some were young, some were old, some, everyone possessing different personalities, and that yet they were unified. And how do you unify this kind of diversity? Well, we spoke about it a couple of weeks ago on the Sunday morning, and that is what God does is He gives us things in common that are so big and so powerful and so majestic that they make all of the things that would divide us look petty and childish in comparison. And how do you hold that diversity together? You look at how what God has provided for us in Christ. We have a common Savior with every other believer in the world, Jesus. We have a common salvation. He's made us one body. We share the same Heavenly Father. I love to pray every morning, Our Father, which art in heaven. I think about how many people all around the world are calling Him Father with me to begin their day or to end their day. We share the same heavenly Father. We've been made a part of the same family. We're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We love the same book. We love to obey the same book, the Bible. We have the same confidence of heaven and eternity and all of these kind of things that God has given us to keep us united. 
And I think it's important for us to understand how important our unity is to the Lord and the body of Christ. And what David felt at the sight of God's people dwelling together in unity, that it produced a psalm, a song in his heart to sing to God and to put it by the Spirit of God with a pen to writing so that people would sing it for the rest of human history. That what David was feeling on that scene was very, very small in comparison to what the heart of God the Father feels when he sees his children dwelling together in unity. What father is there that doesn't desire for his children to get along with one another? And yet you look at, in raising our own earthly children, those of us who have or are doing that, we look at how much we provide for them, and then they will find a comparatively infinitesimally, I can't even say it, small thing to create a war over and fight over. Now look at me. Now look at me. Now look at me. Now look at me. You cross the line. Hold on again. The same thing goes over spiritually in the body of Christ. The things we are willing to fight over and the things that we are willing to divide over. And we do it at expense of the heart of our Heavenly Father who wants us to dwell together in unity. Jesus said, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And here he makes our love for one another the single greatest evidence to the world that we are his disciples. And if we live for love in unity in the midst of the, a world that's given to strife and selfishness and division, people will notice something different about that kind of life, something supernatural about it. And David lists the blessings of brethren dwelling together in unity. He says in verse 1, it's a good thing, it's fitting, and it is. It's good for God. It's good for other people. It's good for us. And then he tells us that it's pleasant, literally that it's lovely. Unity and the family is pleasant to God. And it's pleasant to others, again, in the world who are looking for a place to escape the combat of their daily lives and relationships. And if they can't find it in a church, unity among God's people, then they're not going to find it anywhere. And so there's a responsibility for that to be a part of our lives and for us to be an instrument, an influence for unity in the body of Christ. Think about growing up. The house I grew up in was a war zone all of the time. You just never knew when it was going to break out. How terrible it would be. Everybody on pins and needles and just the tension of it until you know, something would happen and, and, and it would come back to its kind of relative normal. He says that it's like, it also is like the precious oil running down. And the oil's talking about the oil that they used to anoint the high priest with, Aaron, who was the first high priest, the brother of Moses. And the oil that they would anoint the high priest with was a fragrant oil. 
And in fact, that oil was made up of compounds that God had determined Himself so that that fragrance was a unique fragrance. Today, when we anoint people with oil in order to pray for healing, James chapter 5, we take a little vial of oil and we put a little bit on our finger and we put it on their forehead and then we give them a Kleenex so they can wipe it off afterwards. In the old days, you'd come up for anointing and they would take out a jug and they'd pour it over your head. But for the high priest, it was a fragrant oil. It was a refreshing kind of thing. And wherever the high priest would go, people would go, I smell a high priest. The high priest is nearby. You would know it by the fragrance. So they couldn't keep it a secret. It was a beautiful fragrance upon the high priest. And what the Lord is saying here is that there's a beauty, there's a, a beautiful fragrance about the life that has a concern for unity in the body of Christ. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And there is something very ugly about the Christian who is always looking to start a war over something. And they, it's like they're out in this dry field and they're lighting matches and just throwing them all over the place. And they don't even know how valuable what it is they are potentially going to cause to go up in flames. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the person who walks into a situation and immediately their concern is to be a peacemaker, not in violation of God's Word, but to come in and be an influence for unity. And when a person is known for that as opposed to the other, then that life carries a fragrance. People look at that kind of person and there's a beauty about their life and there's a spiritual fragrance that we enjoy receiving from their life. He says it's like the dew of Hermon, Mount Hermon. In other words, this kind of a person concerned about unity is, has a refreshing influence upon others. Mount Hermon is in the very north of Israel, and if you go at the right time of the year, you can go there and you see snow up on the mount. People, it's just, it's like, it blows their mind for some of them. They expect to go to Israel and just desert. They've come to Palm Springs, 500 miles in all direction, just Lawrence of Arabia right before your eyes. And it isn't that way. They, even on Mount Hermon, they have a ski resort. It's one of the trippiest things. You go through on the bus to get to some of the sites that we go one day, and you go through a ski resort. And we're never there in the winter to see the snow and all, so it's kind of weird. Uh, you know, the Israelis skiing? I just I have, trouble, I have trouble picturing skiing in the Middle East, you know. But there it is, and it's all built like this little Swiss village. I remember on one trip, we were with Karen's mom on the trip, affectionately known as Mimi. I call her mom, too. And we rode through that, and it was such a surprise to her. We had gone through a Druze village, which was kind of a run-down and, you know, not very clean and all of this kind of thing. And we came to this ski resort with all the little lodges, and it was like a little piece of Switzerland. And she said, do the Druze know about this? 
The people are shocked by it. And that snow that falls on Mount Hermon, it melts, and the melt moisture of that snow melt, it refreshes the whole land. It feeds the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River that travels from the north to the south, and the whole land is affected by the moisture that rests upon Mount Hermon. And the point that the writer is making is that a person who is an influence for unity in the body of Christ refreshes others but also has an influence that is very far-reaching, more far-reaching than they realize. When a peacemaker and a person with a concern for unity becomes involved in reconciling two Christians who are at war, whether in a marriage or in a local church or whatever it might be, and they unify those two people in that relationship and the war is over. Do you think those are the only two people who ever hear about that? Everybody hears about it. Their mothers, their fathers, their sons, their daughters, their friends, their acquaintances, their relatives. In 48 hours, that news can be all around the world, refreshing the whole world and people giving praise that someone with a concern for unity involved themselves in the situation. And this kind of a person is a refreshment and a blessing in people's lives. And so, this kind of a life, it's an influence for good in the body of Christ. It makes li this kind of person makes life pleasant for others. They bring a beautiful fragrance into whatever environment they come into, and it also brings refreshment into other lives and in a world that is absolutely dominated by conflict, and it blesses the Lord. And we see that all the time. I praise the Lord for almost 30 years of being here at Calvary Chapel of Modesto and the grace that He has poured out upon us to just keep this a simple, loving, unity, unified, people caring about other people place. And after the fellowship hall, you want to witness that, go into the fellowship and see people looking out for one another, and then out into the courtyard and everywhere around on the grounds. And when you see it, each of us as Christians, not just leaders or pastors in a church, but everyone looking at it, when we see that and we have that, not to take that for granted, but to say, oh, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And I just say thank you for your part in all of that. I'm going to go into one more Psalm 134 to close the service this evening because it's a perfect closing psalm. And it's the last of the Psalms of Ascents. The psalmist writes, Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless Bless ye the Lord. That's the song that came out of it. A song written related to that. 
And what you have in Psalm 134 is this close of an evening service. Here are the pilgrims coming from all around the world, and it wasn't like they're going to attend, um, you know, a morning devotional and then play tennis the rest of the day and bridge that evening. They came to meet with God. And so there'd be meetings all the way through the day, worship at the temple, on into the evening meeting. And so when he talks about those who st- uh, by night stand, the scene is this. The temple always had a number of priests and Levites serving there both day and night. There were always priests and Levites serving at the temple. And it's a picture of the fact that Jesus never ceases to operate as our high priest interceding for us day and night. And so the people are now leaving the worship service for the day. And as they're leaving, they sing this psalm as an encouragement to the priests and the Levites who are going to stay there at the temple then through the evening to encourage them in their service uh, to the Lord and, and to encourage them in their ministry to the Lord at the temple through the night. And so in verses 1 and 2, the people call upon the priests and the Levites to lift up their hands in the sanctuary and to bless the Lord, to lift up your hands, universal sign of surrender, but it also speaks of prayer. The lifting up of hands by those religious leaders was a uh, a, a, it was a means by which they were not only praying, but there was this whole um, idea of a full commitment to their prayer, their whole body being engaged in, the, in prayer, not just their mind and not just their heart, but their whole body engaged. One time we were in Israel, and you go to the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall, and the Jews are all lined up, men on one side, women on the other side. They're putting their prayers on the wall, and they're reading the Scriptures, and, and they're praying to God. And then you see almost all of them, the men, they're bobbing like this. It's a chiropractor's dream. So they're bobbing like this the whole time that they're there. And I remember one time uh, one of the people in the group asked our guide, Naftali, why do they bob like that? And he said, well, the Scriptures say to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. So they're not only wanting to pray from their heart and from their mind, but they're wanting their body to be engaged in it as well. It's just a way of saying to God, I'm saying to this to you, I'm praying this to you, the totality of who I am. And of course, Jesus told us that we didn't need to do anything outward like, like that, but we have the ability to worship Him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength to engage everything that we are in, in the worship of the Lord. But that's, that's what they would do. They lift up their hands in intercession, and as the people are leaving the evening service to head for their homes, uh, they are asking for uh, God to just bless these leaders. And then in verse 3, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you in Zion. And now as the people are blessing the leaders as they leave the temple, now the leaders in turn ask for God's blessing upon the congregation as they leave. And you've got this beautiful prayer for mutual blessing. What a I mean, verse 130, Psalm 134 is 
so magnificent, this beautiful, beautiful uh, way to end a worship service, to end a day of worship with the a concern for the mutual blessing of everyone else in the body of Christ as we're parted for some period of time, whether it's a day or until the midweek service or until next Sunday or whatever it might be. And so you can imagine here in Psalm 134 the psalm being sung between the congregation and their spiritual leaders at the end of the day, expressing their love and their concern for one another. And of course, it's a very, very beautiful, very appropriate way to end the Psalms of Ascent, which end with Psalm 134. And we'll pick up Psalm 135 next time. Let's stand together and let's pray.